All right, good morning, y'all. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and uh, it is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, We're going to be going over to Romans chapter 7 this morning. Romans chapter 7, so masks. (laughs) Um, So go ahead and grab your Bibles, flip over to Romans 7. We're going to read it in just a moment. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and open your app. We also have Bibles distributed around the room for those of you who are here. And uh, we're going to be going over to page 943 this morning in our Bibles, page 943, Romans 7. All right, while you're turning over there, a few housekeeping items, um, some announcements that uh, were in your bulletin, but were easy to miss. And so I just want to highlight them. The first is that there's a women's retreat coming up. So if you are a woman and you feel like retreating, this is for you, okay? It's going to be a great opportunity for you to connect with other women in the church and specifically talk about discipleship relationships, how you can grow as a disciple, how you can help others grow in their discipleship relationship with Christ. Now, it's coming up right away, y'all. It's coming up right away. It's coming up this Friday night and Saturday morning. Um, and, uh, and so, if you want to find out more information, uh, you can register on the Church Center app. You can also go to Connection Point which is the table out in the lobby, and there is information about the retreat out there. You can sign up for it or simply have your questions answered. I almost said your answers questioned, but that won't happen there. Um, You'll be safe. All right, uh, second housekeeping item, worship auditions are coming up. If you want to be on the worship team, we have an incredible team uh, with a lot of talented musicians. Uh, and if you want to have the opportunity to use your talent uh, to help lead the body uh, in worshiping Christ, uh, which is both an honor and a whole lot of fun, I think, uh, you can do this, right? But you have to audition. We do require some steps. Um, and so there will be a, a, an audition on Saturday, October 23rd. The information is in the weekly email that I sent out. I believe it's also in the online bulletin. Uh, which you can access on our website or in the Church Center app. Um, And if you want to find out more information, feel free to run by Connection Point. You can talk to Brian personally or email him at bpacheco at trailheadonline.org. Or if you don't want to remember all that information, just, again, look at the online bulletin, either on the website uh, or in the Church Center app. These applications, by the way, uh, for the audition are due October 10th, okay? Uh, so they are due October 10th and the auditions October 23rd. All right, there's your info, Marshall. All right, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is the culmination of Paul's discussion of the law. Um, this is really from this point forward in the book of Romans. Uh, we're not going to be coming back and talking a lot about the role of the law in the Christian life. Um, he's talked a lot about it up to this point, but Romans 7 is kind of the culmination of this specific discussion in the book. And um, uh, Paul is writing, I want you to remember why Paul is writing the book of Romans. Paul is writing to believers in the city of Rome. Uh, These are predominantly non-Jewish followers of Christ. There are Jewish Christians in Rome, but uh, Nero had had kicked out all the Jews uh, at one point, blaming them for unrest, and so they were they were forced to disperse. The church continued to grow in Rome during that time, predominantly with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Then then the Jewish population returned. So it is a mixed church of both Jewish and Gentile uh, people, but it is predominantly um, Gentile. But Paul is writing to these Roman Christians with the hope that they're going to support his mission to Spain. 
right? He's coming to Rome. He's writing this letter in preparation for a visit. And on that visit, he is going to springboard from there, hopefully, to take the gospel uh, west to, to Spain. Now, here's the problem. Romans didn't think much of people in Spain. They didn't think much of anybody west of them, right? In fact, they called them barbarians because their language was so foreign to them. All they heard was bar, 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 bar. That's where we get the word. Uh, It was their way of kind of mocking them, of degrading them. It was their way of looking down on them. Uh, And the idea that, that they would actually financially invest in Paul's mission to share the gospel um, would require them to overcome their prejudice. It would require them to overcome their, their uh, disdain and their, their fear and their pride and, and the, human, the basic human need to create others. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're in, they're out. And so in the letter, you hear a lot about Paul referencing both Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians. He's doing this because in both of those circles, those are the circles of in and out. In the Jewish mind, there were the Jews who kept the the law, and then there were all the the Gentiles. Gentile is simply a word that means nations or ethnicities. It's every other ethnicity on the earth, right? It is fundamentally racist if you want to go there, because that's what they're saying is there's one race who keeps the law, and that's the Jews. And then there's all the Gentiles, the ethnos, the other ethnicities of the world. For the Romans, it was about honor and, and shame. For them, it was, we're the civilized country and everyone else is barbarians. We're the ones who have honor and nobody else has honor. Nobody else has achieved what we have achieved or done what we've done. And so Paul is writing to undercut this fundamental human pattern of creating us-them paradigms, where we're the good guys and they're the bad guys right? He is going to be calling the Roman Christians to love and sacrifice for people that they think of as morally bankrupt and inferior. Uh, And in the process, in order to prepare their hearts for this, he is addressing this human habit. Now, this is a human habit, y'all. We are fundamentally morally driven beings, we're going to get into this this morning, but we are fundamentally morally driven beings. We are continually making moral judgments about us and about others. Continually, like not occasionally, continually. Think about the last time you drove on the highway. I don't even have to say anymore. I mean, think about it. If you're kind of the middle lane kind of speed limit driver, how do you feel people that are flying by you in the left lane? You don't just dislike it, you judge them. They are morally wrong. You feel a right to not only disagree with their behavior, but to judge their motives. Or you're like me, you're in the left lane and you morally judge the slow guy, right? The guy who's determined not to drive a mile over the speed limit in the left lane, right? I mean, how dare you? You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't, so here's what I want you to catch. We don't just disagree with these behaviors. What do we do? We judge them, don't we? We are morally driven beings. And we are making moral assessments continually. And it's reflected in our continual justification of our own behaviors, our own values, our own convictions, and the judgment of those with whom we disagree, right? 
Um, So this unholy habit of creating moral circles of us versus them undermines the mission of the gospel, not surprisingly. Because as soon as we feel morally superior to someone, we no longer love that someone. Love requires a fundamentally different relational dynamic than moral superiority. I can't feel morally superior to you and at the same time feel humbly and self-sacrificially loving toward you. Those are two different postures of the heart. So Paul is confronting the Romans' need to create a world civilized by Romans and barbarians, by Jews and Gentiles, by confronting specifically the Jewish need to create a world of moral law-keeping Jews and corrupt Gentiles. Now remember, Paul is working from an Eastern perspective. And in the East, they, they, it's fundamentally different than America, right? I'm just going to remind you of this. In America, we're individualistic, and we tend to like to deal with things directly, right? Let's solve the problems in the most efficient way possible, which means we're going to put all the cards on the table, we're going to have our conversation, and we're just going to deal with this thing. In the East, that is seen as a violation of relational trust. They deal with conflict indirectly. They do not come directly, they come indirectly so that you don't lose shame because it's a shame-honor culture. And if you, if you take someone's shame, you become their enemy. Or assuming you take someone's honor, you, you become their enemy. And so he's confronting the Roman pattern of moral divide, Romans and barbarians, by confronting the Jewish behavior of defining themselves as superior to others because of their obedience to the law. So I want you to see that it's, it's a microcosm. He's dealing with Jews and Gentiles, but he's not just talking to Jews and Gentiles. And in this process, he is explaining part of God's redemptive historical plan in giving the law. So there's a lot going on here, man. This is complex. There are layers and layers to what Paul is doing, why he's doing it, and how it's all coming together, right? Um, but he's making the point that the law was not given to moral people to help them become more moral. That's not why the law was given. The law wasn't given to moral people to help them become more pure. It was given to impure people to show them how immoral they actually are. So Paul's explanation that moral conviction, his point is that moral conviction is simply insufficient to change the heart. Moral conviction is insufficient to actually be changed if we want to grow in grace, we need, to walk out of the, we need to walk out the reality that we are dead to the law. Okay, so let's take a look at our text. Let's read our verses, and we're going to dig into this. Okay, again, it's complex. I'm going to try to be as clear and simple as I can, but let's read our text. We're going to start in verse 7 and go through verse 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
All right, so let me walk you through this paragraph. Let's, let's go there first. We're going we're gonna to take a little bit of time, and I'm going to walk you through this paragraph verse by verse and kind of highlight what Paul is saying. So keep your Bibles open because I'm going to be referring uh, to the text quite a bit. Uh, and then from there, we're going to talk about what it means for us. All right, so in verse 7, Paul begins with a rhetorical device that he's used previously where he assumes there's going to be an objection, so he just gives voice to it, right? He asks the question he knows someone is going to ask in verse 7. What shall we say then? is the law sin, right? The the reason behind this, right? Paul has already asserted that the Mosaic law does some very, very specific things. It doesn't make anyone right. No, it only shows sin. And not only does it show sin, it shows sin by making sin worse. It actually increases the transgression. That's what we got in Romans 5, right? But it doesn't just increase the transgression. It does it by actually stirring sin up. That's what we just looked at in Romans 7, that it actually comes in and makes sinfulness more sinful. Like, it'll, it'll like, uncover it and produce it. Like, the law comes in, and, and it's kind of like a dusty room, man. It just, like, is a broom going crazy, and it just stirs it all up. It makes a bad situation worse. And so, the obvious question, then, is, like, what, what are you talking about? This is God's holy law. Are you saying the law is sin? And his response, by no means, megeneto is the Greek behind that. It's a very strong, and that's Paul's response, his third time, I think, in the letter so far, megeneto. May it never be. God forbid. Like, no way, man. I mean, it's like a super strong negative, right? That is absolutely not what I'm saying. The purpose of the law wasn't ever to fix sin. Its purpose was to make sin known by stirring it up and making it worse. And then Paul, at the end of the verse, actually gives us a personal example. Like Paul now, like, okay, let's go here. Let me just share with you a little of my story, right? Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Um, Paul giving a personal example, right? When Paul, so let me get a couple terminology points. In the verse, in the passage, you're going to see him talking about commandment and law. So when he talks about law, he's talking about the whole Mosaic law, right? The entire covenant that was made uh, with Moses as the mediator between God and the nation of Israel. When he talks about commandment, he's talking about the specific commandment that, that God used to awaken his painful awareness of his own sin, right? So if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not known what is covet unless God said, you shall not covet. The second thing that I think we need to uh, pay attention to is that there's a certain amount of scholarly debate about who the I is in these verses. And I have to mention it purely because if you study this, you're going to come across it. Uh, There are a lot of scholars that argue that Paul is not, when he says I, he doesn't mean I. What he's actually doing is, is personifying a perceived group or a personifying a perceived person, right? And, and I, I kid you not, there's at least half a dozen different interpretations of what Paul could be meaning by I. He could be talking about Adam. There are references in the text that seem to indicate that he potentially could be talking about the human experience, but specifically our first father's experience. He, he could be personifying the nation of Israel right? That, that he's not really talking about himself. He's talking about himself, but using I as a representative of the nation of Israel. Um, I'm, I'm, you're, I've tipped my hat. I think he's talking about himself. 
Um, I think that makes the most sense of the text, and I'll explain that as we go through. I don't think he's just talking about himself. I think he's talking about himself as a way to invite us to see our story and his story. I think he's talking about himself as a way to represent the human experience through his personal experience. But it's a way to do it that personalizes it, right? That he's no longer simply talking about abstract ideas. He's talking about something that is deep and profound and personal and painful. And I think he does that partly because for us to move to this same place, it's going to be a painful process for us too. And so he's basically saying, hey, come along with me, right? So I think Paul is talking uh, about himself, sharing his story so we can see our story. So Paul says, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet unless the specific commandment came alive to me that said, do not covet. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. All right, so the law gave the command, do not covet. And in giving it, it opened a door in Paul's heart, out of which flowed all sorts of coveting, right? Paul pictures this sin of coveting like a force lying dead in a crypt in his heart until the law comes along and gives it life, right? Take a look at verses 9 through 12. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law is holy, right? Paul doesn't dispute that. In fact, he asserts it. He holds it very, very strongly. The law is holy and the commandment, do not covet, even though it did evil things to him and in him, the commandment is holy and righteous and good, right? The commandment is good. The law is good. But what the law does in our hearts is not good. The law comes with a promise of life. Do this and you will live. Obey me and measure up and you will find life. But when we bring the law to bear on our sinful hearts, instead of fixing our hearts or taming our sin, it awakens it. It empowers it. It brings it to life, and when it comes to life, we die. So Paul took hold of the law to pursue life. He took hold of each of the individual commandments, but instead of opening a door that, that uh, led to the blessed life, it opened a door, which led to a very dark room in Paul's soul, in which a dead thing was lying there waiting to come to life. But this wasn't a good thing trapped and waiting to be freed. It was an evil thing, a dark impulse of sin and destruction that was lying dormant until the door was opened. And in opening the door, it was brought to life and set free. Like opening a crypt with a long dead, undead thing in it. The law turned the key and opened the door and brought it to life. And though Paul was alive apart from the law, he now died as sin came to life within him. So I'm going to catch the logic here, y'all. He's not saying it was the law's fault. 
The law itself isn't sinful, but it did become the vehicle of sin. The problem isn't with the law, the problem is with the heart that takes hold of the law. The problem isn't the tool, the problem is the hand that takes hold of the tool. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, but it serves the power of sin in Paul's life. Promising life, it becomes the weapon of sin to produce all kinds of death in those who try to fix themselves. Those who take hold of it for life will only find death. Now, this is super counterintuitive for us, y'all. Not, not just the Mosaic law, but the principle of law, right? Because you need to get, this isn't, Paul isn't just talking about the, the Jewish experience with the law. That's a microcosm of a greater macrocosm of human reality. Uh, everything um, that's going on here is to instruct us, right? Um, so what this tells us, so let's go back. Everything in us tells us that we're better than others because we know the right things and do the right things, right? That's really what moral judgment comes down to. I am better than you. My behavior is better than your behavior. My convictions are better than your convictions. My way of life is better than your way of life because I know the right things and I do the right things and you don't, right? And if there's anything wrong in me, well, I just need to fix it by knowing the right things and doing the right things. So maybe I don't know all the right things yet. I just need to know more right things because I'm obviously not doing all the right things yet, so I just need to know the right things and then do more of the right things. And, and if others are struggling, it's because they don't know the right things and they're not doing the right things. So the solution is to know more and do more. Know more and do more. The fundamental principle of the law is that you can fix what is wrong through self-discipline and self-improvement. If you just get down to the brass tacks of it, the reason you're struggling is you're not working hard enough. And you're not working hard enough because maybe you're putting your wrong, you just need no more and do more. And if it's not working, it's obviously a problem that you don't know enough and you're not doing enough. So you need to grow in your self-discipline and self-improvement and just know more and do more. Y'all, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It can make you more successful in business. It can win you accolades with your peers. It can get you awards in the public eye but it will turn you into a moral monster. When you fail, you will be covered in shame. When you succeed, you will puff yourself up in pride. There are no other results that come from riding that roller coaster. You'll be driven by your pride and you'll be hiding your shame. The path of self-improvement, self-salvation, self-discipline, and self-control. Now, this is when Paul start, people tend to start getting really nervous um, with Paul and with me. <laughs> we start talking like this. Um, makes people nervous. Well, what, do, what exactly are you saying, Steve? Are, you mean I, I shouldn't have to pay attention to self-improvement? I shouldn't have to try to know more and do more? I shouldn't have to... Are you saying I don't need to obey? Are, are you saying that obedience doesn't make us holy? Or God happy? Yes. And no. 
See, here's the key, y'all. Obedience is good and holy when it's motivated by a motive that's good and holy. The only thing that makes obedience good is the motive that leads to the obedience. Obedience that flows from a place of self-glory, self-protection, self-improvement doesn't make you more holy. It makes you more heinous. It doesn't make you more holy. It turns you into a moral monster. Obedience in and of itself is not what makes us holy. It is obedience that flows from love. Morality isn't just about doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing for the right motive. And now you're starting to see how complex this gets. And why, if you keep digging into this, you're probably going to end up going a little crazy. This is not easy. In fact, it's pretty much impossible. Outside of the grace of God. Uh, I've been reading a book lately by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, It's been recommended to me for several years. Uh, I finally got around to reading it. Uh, It's called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. Um, Here's what's fascinating. So Jonathan Haidt isn't a believer, okay? He's not writing from a a Christian perspective. He is a sociologist uh, who is studying. His life passion is to study moral behavior. Why are people moral and how do they work out their morality? And he's looking at cross-cultural contexts. He is coming at it very much like an anthropologist. He wants to understand it not just in a culture and not just an individual, but across human experience. And so he's studying it in different cultures, different socioeconomic classes, uh, different levels of education, different political backgrounds, different religious convictions or non-convictions. He is looking specifically at um, why And more importantly, how do we make moral judgments? And he's coming to some fascinating conclusions. Um, Conclusions that honestly, um, I love it when when people come from a very, very different view of the world and start seeing the same things I've already kind of discovered in Scripture. That's exactly what we would expect, honestly. Um, The Scripture gives us insight into the human condition. And I love it when people who are studying the human condition completely devoid of my foundation in a Christian worldview Uh, start finding the same things through the study of science that I've discovered through my study of human experience and theology. Let me me give you some of the conclusions that he came to, okay? The first is that moral reasoning and judgment are innate. And what that means is that it's hardwired into the human condition. Humans are hardwired to have moral convictions. Now, for him, he finds evolutionary Uh, data and explanations to explain why that would be, right? Um, And I find it fascinating. I enjoy reading it. Uh, I come to some different conclusions, right? I believe we were created by a holy God and be created in the image of a holy God. We are designed to be moral because morality is an essential part of holiness. And so we make moral judgments because we were designed to find our life in the presence of the perfection of the holiness of God, right? 
But he has discovered in, in his studies that, that morality isn't, um, isn't just taught by culture. Right? We're not moral just because we have parents who teach us to be moral. We're not moral because we have cultures who teach us that we should be right and wrong. We're not born tabula rasa with a blank slate that then culture fills in. We are born uh, a little bit more like Mad Libs. You guys ever play Mad Libs? You know what I'm talking about? It's that story that's like written, but there's blanks in there and you get to fill it in. That's how we're born. Like there's a moral coding on our hearts and the blanks are filled in by our parents, by our culture, by our experience. But the story's already there, right? So it, makes it, it takes a different flavor if you're born in India, if you're born in America, in Eastern culture or Western culture. If, you know what I'm saying? Like it takes, there are different specifics that get filled in, but, but the hard wiring is already there, right? We, we are hardwired for moral reasoning and judgment. It's innate, right? Which is why all humans are continually making moral judgments. We moralize everything, what people wear, what they drive, what they eat and how they eat, where they eat. We moralize what time they get up in the morning or what time they go to bed. We moralize what they watch for entertainment. We are continually judging because we are innately driven by moral judgment, okay? And that is hardwired into the human condition. The second thing uh, is, is that he discovered that our moral reasoning is primarily intuitive and not rational. Our moral reasoning is, is fundamentally intuitive, primarily intuitive and not rational. In other words, we feel first and think second. We feel moral convictions and then come up with constructions to justify them. So we feel fear of hurt, or we feel attracted to something we find beautiful, or we feel disgust towards something, and we then create constructs. So we feel first and think second. So we feel and then justify what we feel. And that becomes our moral construction. The, the role of thinking is to justify what's already been felt as true, Right? The metaphor that he uses is the metaphor of an elephant and a rider. So think about a little dude on top of a big old elephant, okay? The elephant's huge, monstrous, right? Outweighs the man by, I don't know, a thousand to one. The rider isn't controlling the elephant, right? The rider is simply responding to the elephant. The elephant is our intuition. It moves toward what it sees as good, and it moves away from what it sees as bad. The rider doesn't control the elephant. The rider doesn't drive the elephant. The rider's job is to explain the elephant. The rider's job is to justify the elephant. The elephant is your intuitive moral judgment. The rider is your rational mind. Think about the writer as being like the White House press secretary. What's the White House press secretary's job? To make policy? To have conversations? To hold open debates? No. The White House press secretary's job is there for one job, to justify a decision that has already been made. It's their job to stand up front and say, this is what happened, why it happened, and why it was necessary to happen, and why this is the only possible 
solution. The only decision that was rational, the only thing that was good, right? That, that's how your mind functions with your heart. Um, try, it's there to justify. So trying to reason with it, trying to reason with the writer is, is almost useless because, y'all, the mind isn't in control, the heart is. The rational mind doesn't control the elephant. The elephant leads the rational mind. And this leads to one of the final insights that, that I thought was really uh, powerful. Our moral judgment, this is his conclusion in looking at the function of morality in humanity across all cultures, spectrums, age groups, and demographics, right? The function of moral judgment is fundamentally and unwaveringly self-righteous. The purpose of moral judgment is to justify me and my tribe and to condemn you and your tribe. And it is tribal. That is one of the other insights. We may be highly individualistic, but we still find our identity in tribes. And as a result, we are continually looking for ways to justify our tribe as opposed to theirs. So when he talks about his, his book is named The Righteous Mind, and it's ironic because he's not saying the mind is actually righteous. He's saying the mind is fundamentally self-righteous. It is driven by judgment to justify itself. It is fundamentally righteous because it is always determining what is right and wrong and trying to find ways to justify that I am right and you are wrong. This is why, by the way, whenever we create these circles of us versus them, where are the good guys? Isn't it always us and they're the bad guys? right? I mean, it's just the way it works. We don't create us-them circles where we're like, yeah, I'm one of the villains in the story. And in my tribe, we're morally wrong. No. You always identify yourself with the circle of the good guys. You're always in the right place. Why? Because your mind is driven to justify your convictions, your behaviors, your values in contrast to others. So here's what I'm going to catch. Our minds are moral, not because they're actually moral in a, in a good and holy sense, but because we are driven in a moral sense to justify ourselves regardless of the actual morality. The mind has one fundamental purpose, to justify our behavior and that of our tribe. We don't decide what is moral and then do it. We feel disgust or attraction and then justify it. So I want you to catch this. This is like Cranmer. We've talked about Cranmer a lot, and I love his, his theological insight. Cranmer says, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That is a summary of Cranmer's theological view of anthropology, and I agree with it, right? That's biblical. We've, we've looked at that, right? What he is discovering is the same exact principle, but he's coming through science. He's coming to the same conclusion. What the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. 
right? Hate is coming to the same conclusion. He's only getting there through biology and sociology instead of theology. So how does this tie into our text? The law reasons with the writer. It doesn't influence the elephant. The law engages our mind. But it does not transform our desires. Our attempt to do the right thing by knowing the right thing is fundamentally flawed because our will is not free. Our will is enslaved to our disordered desires. The law argues with the rider, but it doesn't control the elephant. And so what ends up happening is the rider simply absorbs this new information, categorizes it, and then uses it in new and more complex forms of self-justification. So you, you give all of this tremendous, holy, good, and righteous truth to a mind that is determined to justify itself, and it simply finds new moral ammunition to defend itself and to condemn others. The writer simply absorbs the new information and integrates it into new forms of self-justification. Y'all, this is how you end up with people devoted to obeying the law, but murdering the only man who ever actually kept it. This is how you end up with people whose whole life is devoted to studying the law, keeping the law, honoring the law, and yet then breaking the law in order to murder the one who gave the law because he threatened their systems of self-justification. He exposed their motives and the rider doesn't want to see the elephant. The rider isn't interested in being good. The rider is only interested in being seen as good. We are more concerned with how people see us than with who we actually are. We're more concerned with being seen as virtuous than actually being virtuous. We are more concerned with, with being looked up to than we are with actually being what should be looked up to. For Paul, somewhere along the line, the Spirit used the law to reveal the elephant to him. In other words, the Spirit used the law to reveal his actual motives to him, his disordered desires to him. Um, specifically through the commandment, do not covet. The Spirit revealed to him that under his moral self-justifications and all of his moral behavior were motives that were deeply self-centered and selfish and self-glorifying and fundamentally sinful. Why covet? I believe it's in context. When we think about Paul, man, Paul was a driven guy. He was driven to outdo everybody. 
We see that both in his life as an unbeliever and then as a believer. He was always trying to outpace everybody, outdo everybody, outachieve everybody. He was constantly in the need of being the hardest worker in the room, the smartest guy on the, on the scene, the one who, who just excelled everybody. He was deeply and fundamentally competitive. And his competition to outdo others in religious devotion, God revealed it to him, man. That didn't flow from a desire of holiness. It flowed from envy. Envy is the manifestation of covetousness. When I'm covetous of who you are and what you have, I'm envious. I'm envious that I'm not you, that you have what I don't have. You've achieved in something I haven't achieved in. You've succeeded in something I haven't succeeded in. He realized through the Spirit, working through the law, the, the command, you shall not covet. And he thought he was totally killing it and knocking it out of the park because he didn't covet anybody else's horse. He didn't covet anybody else's house. He didn't covet anybody else's bank account. He didn't covet anybody else's. But he came to see that his fundamental, basic, driving need in this world was to be better than others, to be the hardest worker, the smartest, the one who was most achieved, because then that's what made him worthwhile. He was driven by envy. He was always and consistently comparing himself with others. The Spirit revealed that to him. The Spirit turned on the light through the law and allowed him to see the disordered desires that were leading to the behaviors that he was continually trying to justify morally. The Spirit of God revealed to him that his pride was actually his shame. That the thing that he thought made him strong was actually his weakness. That what he was taking glory in was, in fact, his shame. That under his moral self-justifications and moral behavior and moral self-improvement were motives that were deeply self-centered and sinful. Even his best works were manifestations of his worst and most sinful motives. The elephant was driven by his deep disordered desire for autonomy from God and self-glory. Even his religious behavior, even his moral behavior. And the law was powerless to influence the elephant. This is another commonality I found with Haight's book, which I thought was pretty insightful. Haight's argument is that if you really want to change the dynamics of how we relate to one another. You have to learn how to direct the elephant and not just speak to the rider. <laughs> we spend all of our time arguing about politics and religion and about morality, and all we're doing is one rider to another explaining why our self-justifications are better than others, and it never gets anywhere. <clears throat> if you really want to change personally or change the dynamics in which you operate, you have to find a way to engage and influence the heart and not simply address the mind. We need to have a way to actually influence the elephant and not simply respond to it. These disordered desires that drive us. And here's the thing. What the law can't do, grace can. It was in the service of grace that the law awakened Paul to the reality of his polluted motives. What Paul describes in these verses is the beginning of the work of grace, working through the destruction of the law to bring the healing of love. The law does its damage, but where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Y'all, only love can change the human heart. 
Only grace can reorder the disordered desires of our heart and reorient them once again to the holiness of God instead of the self-protection and self-glory of man. It is only in being loved that we learn to love. It is only in responding to grace that our sense of what is good and bad, holy and evil is reoriented from a self-centered, self-justifying approach to one that simply rests and rejoices in the manifestation of God's character. The law, while perfect and holy and good, is useless when it comes to changing the human heart. Rules don't get it. You're not going to change someone's heart through rules. You're not going to, it, you're just not going to get there, right? Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. Let me just read you these verses. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, the former commandment, that is the Mosaic law and all of its commandments, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What is the better hope? The hope of grace. The hope of love. Now, Paul doesn't get into that in our paragraph, but I didn't want to leave us just in this paragraph. This paragraph is explaining to us everything that's wrong. And I want to end on a note that even though the law can't, the grace of God can. And it's not through self-improvement. It's not through self-discipline. It's not through, through fixing myself. It is simply through responding to love. So let's rest in this better hope. And let's respond to this better invitation. All right, I'm going to close this word of prayer. And uh, next week we get to continue with, uh, with more of Paul's exploration of how this dynamic plays out in his own heart. Okay? Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll share communion together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that um, even though the law um, does bad things in our hearts, it was given from a gracious purpose. The Lord, you work through this good and perfect commandment, not to set us free, but to reveal to us how hopeless our ability to free ourselves is that we might truly come to a place of absolute helplessness and despair of self-improvement and self-fixing and self-discipline, that we might actually come to a place where we abandoned ourselves in hopelessness to the hope of grace, that we might give up this futile effort to fix our hearts through our minds or our wills and might simply rest in your love confident, Lord, that it is your love that will ultimately fix our hearts and set us free. We thank you, Lord, that you're the one who paid the price for this to happen, that you entered into our brokenness, that you might meet us in it and lead us out of it, that you paid the price of our sin, that we might set free, be set free from it, that you rose from the dead, that we might be covered in your glory, that we might once again be loved, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because we're covered in Jesus, the Beloved. Free us into this joy, Lord. Free us into this hope and into this faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.